And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the Tuesday edition of The Real Investment Show on our website this morning, of course, realinvestmentadvice.com. Amazing how all the names are the same. Uh, makes it easy to find that way. Uh, our article out today is talking about too much bearishness in the market. Is that a kind of a contrarian thing? And, you know, as we've talked about in the past, being a contrarian investor, you know, it tends to work out better over time. And there's so much bearishness and so much, you know, uh, angst about the market this year. And plenty of reasons to be that way, right? I mean, the Fed's hiking interest rates or tightening their balance sheet. Uh, the leading economic index yesterday coming in much weaker than expected. The leading economic index, and particularly the six-month rate of change of that index, is one of the best leading indicators of a recession. And right now, the leading economic index is at a level that has preceded every recession in history. So obviously, a recession is coming, right? But you know, this is the problem. When we all think the same way in the markets and everybody's on you know, kind of one side of the boat, other things tend to happen. And, you know, there's an old saying, Sam Stovall of S&P once said that if everybody is bullish, then who's left to buy, right? And, and if everybody's bearish, then who's left to sell? And that's how markets work over time is that, you know, you get this kind of period of where everybody's so bearish about things that markets kind of start to do something you don't you don't really kind of expect. And, you know, almost this morning, it was, we always try to come up with, you know, funny titles for the show <laughs> from time to time. I should have named this show Loverboy because if you don't know the song, um, it's called Working for the Weekend. Now, this just goes to show your age, right? <laughs> But the lyrics start out saying, you know, everybody's watching to see what you will do. And that's exactly what's happening with the S&P right now. So going back to the beginning of last year in January of 2020, um, there has been a, a declining trend of the market ever since then. And every rally to that declining trend of the market has been where the market failed and went lower. And there were some key things that kind of happened at these, at these points. Um, you know, for instance, back... Um, in August, uh, September, when markets were rallying very strongly, got above the 200-day moving average, everything's looking good. Jerome Powell comes out at the uh, Jacksonville conference and says, nope, we're going to hike rates until the cows come home because of inflation. And that sent the markets you know, dramatically lower. Uh, in December, when the markets were rallying again, back to this downtrend line, Federal, uh, Jerome Powell at the FOMC meeting says, nope, we're going to keep hiking rates. <laughs> sending the markets lower. So, you know, every time the market has tried to rally uh, back to this downtrend line, it's been, it's been met by this resistance uh, of this downtrend. Um, but we've also talked about kind of this bullish development in the market that's been occurring now um, over the last couple of months in particular. Since the October lows, the market's been establishing this path of, of higher bottoms and has really been compressing prices to, to a degree. And as we've talked about before, that is very much like compressing a spring. And as you compress that spring, at some point that spring is going to uncoil. And when it does so, it does so with a, a fairly decent amount of force. And typically when you get this kind of compression in the markets, the markets explode kind of in one direction or the other. But not just that. There's also some other bullish patterns we've talked about here recently. Uh, the market has formed what's called an inverse 
head and shoulders pattern as well. And so when you talk, uh, you know, kind of history, everybody knows, you know, you talk, they talk a lot about, it. oh, the market's a head and shoulders pattern, and that precedes big drops in the markets. And we actually did have that back in, uh, you know, late December, early January, the markets kind of formed a head and shoulders top. We took out that neckline and, and the markets did decline. It's just, a te don't worry too much about it. You, you can look at it, but you know, it's, it's just kind of a technical thing that suggests that markets are exhausted on the way up. And typically you have to work off that exhaustion through a decline. Well, the opposite occurs at the bottom of markets. And this is where you establish a, a series of, of lows where the market begins to kind of establish and consolidate a base. And, and that's what's been happening really ever over the last eight months, the market has really gone nowhere. So despite all the angst of headlines and news flow and inflation and all this stuff, markets have done nothing really going all the way back to June of last year. We've just really kind of been trading sideways. It's been very frustrating, <laughs> you know, for investors uh, not going anywhere, but the market really hasn't done much. Well, again, yesterday, so you have this kind of development here, and, and as we talked about before, our MACD buy signals in place. Markets are not exceedingly overbought right now, so um, this kind of rally we've had here over the last few days, certainly not surprising. But yesterday, the markets did break above that downtrend that goes all the way back to January of 2020. And this is what I'm talking about now and, and what everybody's going to be really kind of paying attention to over the really kind of the next few days in particular is this very strong break above the 200-day moving average that happened yesterday, broke above that downtrend line. Now everybody's kind of looking to see where this market's gonna go. Now this morning, futures are pointing a little bit lower. Again, kind of not surprising. You've had a couple of very strong days in the market. Two days in a row now, the markets were up over 1% for the day. So a very sharp advance here over the last couple of days. So again, a little bit of a pullback here, not surprising. What would be ideal if this market is going to hang on to this rally is to come down, retest this 200-day moving average from being over it, and then turn back up again. And that will kind of confirm this break above the 200-day. So it's a little bit early to say that you know we're out of the woods just yet, but this is a very encouraging test that we're doing right now. The market is testing this kind of breakout. Uh, importantly, by the end of the week, we'll have to see you know kind of where we are. But again, uh, we've been talking about this improvement in the markets. Been getting a lot of pushback emails, by the way. <laughs> you know, going, how can you say the market's improving? I'm just telling you what the technicals say. Prices say the market is improving. Economic data is terrible. Um, if you take a look at the leading economic index, as I said yesterday, that's in more recessionary territory. A lot of the manufacturing indexes continue to come in weaker than expected. We've got Richmond Fed out today. Uh, also, we've got the Philly Fed coming out. We'll take a look at what those uh, uh, indexes have to say. Earnings coming in about in line with expectations. So not surprising. We've lowered earnings to a good degree. So seeing a lot of earnings kind of getting across the bar. But now starting today, uh, Microsoft today, um, Union Pacific, quite a few other companies. I'll go through the list a little bit later on the show. But we've got, we are now getting into the thrusts of the big companies. We've kind of had financials over the last week. Most of those are, have now reported. Now we're getting into pretty much the thrust of earnings. This week and next week are gonna be very, very heavy earnings days. And again, paying attention to what those companies are saying 
about earnings in the future is going to be more important than how they actually report. Because again, we, we've lowered estimates to the point now that most of these companies are going to, to meet or slightly beat those estimates. But it's really gonna be important what they say about earnings and profits over the course of the rest of this year, what actions they're taking. And most importantly, can they pass on higher rates of inflation to consumers? See, and that's going to be the big question. So that's what we really want to watch on because profit margins are really the biggest risk to the markets right now over the next few months. And when we come back from the break, um, we'll talk a little bit more about this, kind of what's going on, I'll go through some of the data that's coming out today. Also want to touch on this idea of a 28% national sales tax. Uh, my wife and I were talking about uh, this last night. A lot of misinformation coming out on the media right now as well. So we'll touch on that as well and why that, you know, might be an interesting idea. Is it a great idea? We'll talk about that as well. Uh, that's coming up on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com housekeeping getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task our next candid coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk saturday january 28th with richard rosso and danny ratliff register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the financial housekeeping candid coffee with ratliff and rosso register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show Roberts. Um, you know, so yesterday we touched on uh, this whole idea about uh, carbon credits and we kind of went through, you know, kind of the, the issue of, you know, trying to, you know, offset climate change and those type of things through these different means. And ESG investing, as an example, has been really pushed by BlackRock. And we've gone through the whole fallacy and scam of, of ESG several times here on the show. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, I brought this up yesterday and we were just talking about you know, the, this kind of idea of just buying your way out of trouble uh, through carbon credits. And I thought this was interesting because on Yahoo Finance this morning, uh, they're kind of, you know, they, they write a, a morning brief and kind of talks about some topic of the market or whatever. And they're talking about the Davos World Economic Forum where all of the rich gather every year. They all fly over there in their private jets and drive limos and produce a massive carbon footprint to go over and have this, you know, confab of everybody just agreeing with each other about how everybody else needs to give up, you know, everything <laughs> from eating meat to moving to eat bugs. And I'm, I'm not joking. This is the things they talk about um, to basically how they can, you know, rule the world through the World Economic Forum and where you will basically wind up owning nothing and renting everything and being happy about it because that will ensure that all the wealth stays concentrated in the hands of the wealthy. 
So don't mistake what the World Economic Forum is. They are not about you know, climate change and making the world a better place. The World Economic Forum is there to make sure that the rich stay rich. And it was interesting, though, because they're getting a lot of pushback, of course, for flying over there in their private jets and, and creating all these things, and particularly at a time Microsoft coming under fire uh, just recently as well, because they've had this lavish party of, you know, for all these billionaires and, and you know, society elite, et cetera, with Sting. I didn't even know Sting was still alive. Uh, but <laughs> they had him performing, you know, at this lavish party that they threw. And then the next week they fired 10,000 employees, which certainly doesn't send the right message. If, you know, if your company's in trouble and you need to lay, you know, need to terminate employees, why are you throwing this lavish party with Sting, right? Just really doesn't send a very good message. But it was interesting because one of the regular charges leveled at participants, you know, at the World Economic Forum in Davos every year is, is you know, they, the, they talk big about climate change, but then they have a huge carbon footprint that they leave it behind. And, and I thought this was interesting because the World Economic Forum has now responded to this criticism. And they said that the World Economic Forum offsets all of their travel by buying carbon credits. Now, again, let's talk about carbon credits for just a moment. Brent has a coal, this is the example we used yesterday. Brent has a coal-fired plant producing electricity, but he's never upgraded his technology. He, he does not do clean coal, right? He's doing the, the 1920s coal-type burning. I mean, it's just the nasty production of coal. And he's mining it, and he's smelting it, and doing everything he needs to do, and he's creating electricity for Americans. Awesome. But he's polluting the planet like crazy. But he has no carbon footprint. He is in he is the number one. His company is the number one cleanest company on the planet. Even though he's polluting the atmosphere like crazy. And he does that because I have an electric car company. And I produce EVs and I have carbon credits, which I then sell to Brent for $100 million a year. This this is actually what happens in real life, by the way. <laughs> Not between I, you and I, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> Just say I that. don't have Brent's $100 million, That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but I sell Brent my carbon credit that I get from the government, right? So I sell him the carbon credit, and he gets to offset all of his pollution by paying me for a carbon credit. Now... What good does that do the planet? Right? All we're, we're not reducing carbon, right? You're just simply buying the credit from somebody else and saying, oh, yeah, I can offset all of my, you know. And the reason these were set up is exactly for this reason, by the way, is it created a market for Wall Street to buy and sell carbon credits. And it's, and it's hundreds of billions of dollars of activity. That goes on. It's, it's, a, it's a very big thing. But this is this is the issue that goes on. And it's just, you know, this is just the whole fallacy of climate change and capitalism at work, et cetera. But, you know, again, if you can make a market in something, Wall Street's going to figure it out and 
say, okay, fine, you're a polluter and you're a non-polluter, so I give you a you get a carbon credit and then you sell the carbon credit to this guy and I'll facilitate the transactions for you. Take a small clip off that. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> So uh, the House Republicans, yes, uh, just recently, about three, four days ago, introduced a bill to create a national sales tax. And I was talking to my wife about this last night because uh, the Biden administration put out a tweet that said the Republicans want to hike taxes by 28 percent at a time where families need relief. Well, that was a very wrong statement because they're not wanting to hike taxes by 28%. They're not wanting to add a 28% sales tax. They want to get rid of the IRS. So what this national sales tax does is it gets rid of all federal income taxes and it gets rid of the IRS. You don't need them anymore. Everybody just pays 28%, a 28% sales tax on whatever you go buy. So if, if I go to the store and buy milk, I pay a 28% sales tax on that. Now, it sounds like a lot. But again, I'm not paying any income tax. No federal income taxes. Those are gone. So this is, this is the idea, and this is what we've talked about before. This is what's called a fair tax, right? Everybody just pays their same thing. It's a little different than a flat tax. Flat tax is just everybody pays 10% of their income. So no matter what your income is, you pay 10% of it. This is a, a fair tax. This is kind of a this is a national sales tax. So you only buy on what you consume. And so the first response to this is always, well, Lance, that's not fair. Because people that make fifty thousand dollars, their tax bracket is twenty percent. Rich people have their tax bracket in the 34%, 33%, whatever, right? So this is a this this is a big benefit to rich people. Okay. Maybe. But here's the thing. It's a sales tax. And then I'm not championing this one over the other. We're just talking about the reality of what has been proposed versus what you're hearing in the media. The theory behind a sales tax is that it's based on consumption. So if Brent, let's say Brent and I go out and buy the exact same product. I have, I'm, I'm a millionaire and Brent's in the poorhouse. Okay. Brent makes $20,000 a year because I pay him minimum wage and work him 80 hours a week. And, I'm, and, and I have, you know, millions of dollars in the bank. Right, so we go out and we buy the exact same product. He goes out and buys a Mazda Miata. What's a Mazda, what's a Mazda Miata running today? New ones are running in the mid to upper thirties these days. Okay, well that's that's not a good example. How yeah. what what what? But let's let's get a Genesis. What's that run? A Genesis Coupe. Okay, what's that run? You can forty to fifties. No, no, I want a lower. Want I want I want something like ten thousand dollars. Oh, okay, you, I don't know if you, I can buy a car for ten thousand dollars. You want today. a Nissan Versa? Okay. Brent goes out and buys a Nissan Versa for $10,000. He's going to pay 28% sales tax on that Nissan Versa. Okay, so for him, another $2,800, uh, sorry, another, yeah, $2,800 is a lot of money to him. 
right? So now his car is really 12800 For me, buying a $10,000 car because I've got millions in the bank is nothing, right? So you go, see, that's, that's not fair. Well, that's not the way the world works. Brent's going out and buying a Nissan Versa. Yeah, and he's paying 28% sales tax on a Nissan Versa at $10,000. And I'm not sure you know, that's what the price is. We're just using example yeah. here. So don't, don't email me what the cost of a Versa is. Easy numbers. Yeah. I'm not buying. If I have millions in the bank, I'm not buying a Nissan Versa. I'm buying a Ford GT 240, right? Shelby. Shelby, exactly. Yeah. That runs 240 grand. So this is rounded up to 300 because I get all the extras on it, right? <laughs> and I'm paying 28% on 300 grand. Now, the point is, is the consumption tax hits people at the level with which they consume. So in theory, what happens with this kind of a sales tax is that rich people consume, A, consume more, and B, consume more expensive products and therefore will generate a bulk of the tax revenue collected at that level. That's the theory behind a fair tax. Same thing, see, in a flat tax doesn't do that. It just says, I pay 10% here, I pay 10% there, everybody pays 10% based on income, right? So now you've got to go back and calculate, well, what is income? Where's that come from? So, but this is, this is kind of the idea, and, and you know this has been floated around for quite some time, is this idea of a flat tax or a fair tax. And, there, and there's, there's problems with it, right? There's, you know, this is, you know, the problem with taxation, period, is that taxation is not fair at certain levels. And, and no matter how you structure it, it's not fair. You wipe out the tax, you say, okay, everybody under... The bottom 50% of income earners just pay no tax, right? What about all the people at the top? Right? So no matter how you come up with a tax system, it's never going to be fair for everybody. The point is, is to try to make it equitable as best as you can if you are forced to charge taxes to begin with, which was never the idea in the Constitution to start with. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com housekeeping getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task our next candid coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk saturday january 28th with richard rosso and danny ratliff register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the financial housekeeping candid coffee with ratliff and rosso register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to The Real Investment Show. So welcome back. So, oh, by the way, just so I don't get a bunch of emails and stuff. Yes, in the fair tax proposal that was proposed by the uh, GOP recently, there is a rebate for low-income consumers, you know, in that proposal. So not to get, I don't want to get down into the weeds of that. Just, you know, what's what the media is reporting is that this is an additional tax 
on consumers on top of the income tax. No, it's a, it's a it's a replacement system for the IRS entirely. So you would no longer pay income taxes. There would be no federal income tax. Which brings up an interesting point to this as well about corporate income taxes. Because well, a lot of time a lot of, you know, recently a lot of talk is is well corporations don't pay their fair share of taxes. Well, here's the problem with the current tax system. Uh, we tax the same dollar over and over and over and over again, right? So you think about this. A corporation goes out, and, I, and, and this is an argument for no corporate income taxes, by the way, indirectly. Corporation makes a widget. They sell the widget to Brent, right? That's where they create their income right so so they sell the the widget to brent brent pays them 50 dollars for the widget they now have 50 dollars and let's call it 100 dollars. i need easy math so brent gets you know brent pays 100 dollars for this widget the company now is 100 dollars of income right and so we say okay well now the corporation needs to pay tax on that so they pay 28 percent on 100 dollars of tax 25 percent, whatever your tax rate is So they pay 25%, easy math again. So now that $100 is $75. Then they pay wages. So now Brent actually works for the same company that he just bought the widget from. So they pay Brent $100 in wages. So now he's got his $100 in wages, of which now he pays income tax on that. But that ta- that dollar's already been taxed, right? Because that was the dollar that 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 was the hundred dollars that the company just paid tax on. They now pay Brent. Brent pays income tax on that. Then Brent goes out and buys other stuff with what's left over is his money, <laughs> and he carbon pays credits. Yeah, carbon credits. <laughs> <laughs> he goes out and buys carbon credits. <laughs> but now he goes to the store. He buys groceries. He pays a sales tax on that. He pays his property taxes, school taxes, you know, um, you know, city taxes, state income taxes. Um, gas taxes, road taxes, just on and on and on. And, you know, so this is why, you know, when you take, when you start talking about taxes, right, who pays taxes, who pays the most taxes, blah, blah, blah. When you actually start adding up all the taxes, taxes run 60 to 70% of every dollar you, you earn. I mean, if you don't believe in taxes, just go take a look at a phone bill, <laughs> Interstate transmission tax, this tax, that tax, this other tax, the pick up the phone tax, the text tax. You know, there's a, there's a tax for everything. So, you know, this whole conversation that rich people don't pay enough in taxes or poor people don't pay enough in taxes or they pay too much in taxes, whatever. We pay too much in taxes, period. If you want stronger economic growth, you got to figure out how to give people more money to spend. Right, because we're seventy percent based on consumption, and you're taxing them. You know, you're taxing every dollar basically to death. And then, of course, you throw on top of that interest, income, expenses, and those type of things for the debt that you have, the credit card debt, the student loan debt, the auto debt, the mortgage debt. This is why most Americans have a very tough time just making ends meet. Because at the end of the day, after you go to work and earn whatever your pay scale is, there isn't a lot left over because of taxes. And somehow, miraculously, we cannot figure out how to live within our means, right? 
I posted a, a chart yesterday on Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, at Lance Roberts, um, I posted this chart yesterday of the breakdown of the government budget. And I thought this was interesting because um, here, let me slide this over here, Brent, so you can pick up a picture of it. But this was a chart of the government budget breakdown and how money is spent. 21% is Social Security. Health insurance is 25%. So health insurance is prescription drug benefits, uh, the Affordable Care Act, all those type of things, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. Social Security is Social Security, obviously. Um, economic security programs is uh, 11%. Benefits for veterans and retirees and interest on the debt are both 7%. Now, here's the interesting thing. Out of your dollar of tax that you pay, so every dollar of tax that you pay, that only covers health insurance, Social Security, benefits for, for veterans, and interest on the debt because that is what's called mandatory spending. So every tax dollar that you pay in, it doesn't even cover that. Those programs run more in total expenditures on a mandatory basis than what we bring in in tax revenue. And then, of course, the rest of that chart, transportation, education, national resources and agriculture, science and medical research, law enforcement, international, other, that's all paid for in debt. This is what we were talking about yesterday. When there's a government shutdown, why do we shut down national parks? Because natural resor national resources and agriculture is an easy thing to pick on. <laughs> but it's discretionary spending, right? So that's why we shut down a park. There's no funding for it. But, you know, this is, this is the problem, as I was, you know, that we have to understand is that while taxes are an issue, and there's plenty of argument on the left that, you know, the rich people don't pay their fair share. What is their fair share? Right? Let's just tax all the rich people 100% of their income. And that'll work for one year. And then you've got no economy. Because most of the people that you're going to go pick on to take all their wealth from them, say everybody over $5 million in revenue or whatever, those are mostly your business owners. Big chunk of them. So once you tax them into poverty then there's no incentive to run their business. So they close up shop. And why, why am I going to go run? Why am I going to be Bill Gates running Microsoft? If you're going to tax me 100% of my revenue, why run Microsoft, right? Then I'll, then I'll lay off all the employees and everybody goes, well, it's not fair. Microsoft laid me off. Well, that's the problem, right? So 90% of your taxes are paid by your top 20% of income earners. The bottom 20% get money back from the government, right? So, you know, you have to, when you hear these, the, the point of this conversation is, is that you have to put all this into perspective when you see this stuff online and on the media about, you know, how taxes are not fair. Taxes aren't fair, period, right? No, I don't know anybody that goes, I want to pay more taxes. And by the way, this just goes to the point that the next time you hear somebody, some rich person like Warren Buffett or whatever, say, well, you know, I pay less in taxes than my secretary. 
Okay, write a check to the government instead of fighting a billion-dollar tax bill that you have, Mr. Buffett. Write a check to the government. They'll take the money. If you write a check, you you are more. If you feel like you should pay more in taxes, that you're making so much money that you should pay more in taxes, don't complain about how the fact that this goes for Bill Gates, by the way, he's also talking about, oh, the rich people need to pay more. Great. Pay more. There's nothing that stops you from writing a check to the Treasury Department of the United States and saying additional tax money. Here's a gift. Whatever you want to do, you can write a check to the government, and I guarantee you the government will cash it. So it's all hypocritical. These rich people running around talking about how rich people need to, need to pay more. If rich people need to pay more, pay more. Nothing's stopping you. But yet they're the ones that are also going out working every advantage loophole that they can find, right? Everybody's been talking about lately Bill Gates. He's, been buy he's now the largest farmland owner in the United States. Why would Bill Gates, who, first of all, is worth billions of dollars, go buy a bunch of farmland? Well, first of all, it's a hell of a good business. Leasing farmland to farmers is a very good business. But guess what it also has? It has tax credits out the wazoo. Do you realize that if you have a piece of property, that if you go stick a, bee, a beehive on it, that you can get tax credits for that? Right? Go throw, if you have a piece of land out there you're paying taxes on, go throw a goat out there. A, he'll mow the grass, and B, you'll get an agricultural exemption for it, right? So don't think that people are going around doing things just out of the goodness of their heart, right? A lot of these things have tax benefits to them. So the point is, is that when you hear somebody running around going, I want to pay more in taxes, simply tell them, go ahead. Nothing's stopping you. Write a check. Put your money where your mouth is. But that's not really the case of how it works. It's all a great game to make them kind of look better in the eyes of the of the of the serfs, right? Bill Gates wants to be the champion of the serfs. He wants to pay more in taxes. Yes, those rich people should pay more in taxes. I like this guy. If he wanted to pay more in taxes, he could. He could write a check and wipe out the national debt. Not really, but you get my point. <laughs> he put a big dent in it. <laughs> all right, be right back after the break. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com housekeeping getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task our next candid coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk saturday january 28th with richard rosso and danny ratliff register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the financial housekeeping candid coffee with ratliff and rosso register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show 
and welcome back to the show this morning. All right, let's uh, get back to markets. Enough on taxes. Let's just get that, that this whole topic gets me fired up. <laughs> so, and rightfully so. I know. Well, it's just that it, there's, you know, it's just. If you read the Constitution, we weren't supposed to get taxed to start with. No taxation without representation. That was kind of the whole premise. It didn't come along to what, 1913, I yeah. think? Yeah. 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 To fund a war. Exactly. And then everybody goes, hey, wait a minute. You yeah. got money coming in? Yeah. This is awesome. Mm. Let's tax more. <laughs> so, I think I'll take this job for life. Exactly. The whole reason that we fought a war to establish this country was to get away from <laughs> taxation. <laughs> Without representation. <laughs> yes. Well, technically, we have we are taxed, yes, and we do have representation. We elect our officials to go to Washington to tax us more. So technically, we have taxation with representation. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not sure that is exactly what we wanted. We need an eye roll cam in here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, back to markets. Um, so today's article on the website is talking about the contrarian trade. And, and this, look, this is one of the big you know, risk of the markets. And, and, and you know, everybody's bearish right now. Um, <laughs> good example. Here, here's a good example. And I, I actually posted this um, link or, or this tweet into my post, but I, I ran a, a Twitter poll. And I said, B of A currently expects the S&P 500 to end 2023 at 3892 where do you expect the year to end? And I gave some ranges below 3,300, between 3,500 and 4,000, um, between 42 and 4,500 and above 4,500. 75% of the vote was for where we are now or lower, right? So, so a very large percentage of those that you know, voted in the poll are bearish. And, and so the point about this is that when you take a look at investor sentiment, positioning, you know, all these type of things, everybody is on the bearish side of the trade. And as we talked about before, the problem with that is the markets tend to do what you don't expect them to do. There, you know, Bob Farrell, uh, who is one of the great Wall Street technicians, once said that he had, he had these 10 investment rules. And we've written articles on our website about his 10 investment rules. But number nine was when all experts agree, then something else tends to happen. And it's for that reason. And this goes back to the Sam Stovall quote, you know, when everybody's bullish, who's left to buy? And when everybody's bearish, who's left to sell? And that's kind of the way to think about the market. Everybody's so bearish you've you know theoretically you've already sold everything you're, you're either sitting in cash or you've sold everything you want to sell and now you've bought a bunch of gold right and that's okay the problem becomes when the market begins to reverse and it will And when the markets have priced in economic recession, earnings decline, et cetera, then prices will stop going down. Now, has, has, have we reached that point yet? Don't know. Nobody does know. There's certainly arguments, you know, for this market to go lower. 
economics, Fed, interest rates, inflation, plenty of arguments, right? But that but that's all, you know, that's what everybody knows, right? And the one thing that's required for a market to go lower is an unexpected exogenous event that nobody's counting on. If everybody's already looking at all these negative events going, hey, I think, and again, they could be wrong, but if they're going, I think Amazon being down 50% this year has priced in a recession. Then Amazon may find, a, may find a bottom sooner than the rest of the market. And this is going to be the trick, right? This is going to be the thing we have to figure out. Howard Marks, who was the famous investor for Oak Tree, still is, by the way, um, once said that resisting and thereby achieving success as a contrarian isn't easy. Things combine to make it difficult, including natural herd tendencies and the pain imposed by being out of step, particularly when momentum invariably makes pro-cyclical actions look correct for a while. Given the uncertain nature of the future and thus the difficulty of being confident your position is the correct one, especially as price moves against you, it's challenging to be a contrarian. Now, he wrote this when we were in the middle of a bull liquidity fuel bull market, right? So prices are just going up, and he's like, hey, this can't last forever. This is going to break at some point. But just as being a contrarian against an overly bullish market, being a contrarian against an overly bearish market is also just as important. Now, this doesn't mean go out and just buy everything because you think the bear market's over. My point, though, is, is not to stay too long in one position or the other. That's how you get hurt. You know, the, we talked about yesterday the fact that uh, there's an old saying that more money has been lost trying to avoid the bear market than the bear market itself. And, and a good example of this is, you know, we, we get emails from people that have been out of the market since 2009. Great. They missed a 50% downturn in the market and they missed a 400% advance. So which one hurt them more? Missing the bear market? or missing the 400% advance that followed it. So it's about managing capital and risk over time, and it doesn't mean you're always going to get it right, but odds are markets are going to rise more often than they fall. And that doesn't mean you just write it up and down. I mean, we've been sitting in 30%, you know, 30 35 40% cash since January of last year. So, you know, we're certainly not just this buy and hold mentality. And just letting the whole thing kind of wash over us. It's not that's not the point. But the other the point about investing is to try to understand these inflection points where markets began to go against the conventional wisdom, both up or down. And right now, that conventional wisdom is, is that the world sucks, everything's getting better, and the cowboys are gonna win. <laughs> that was conventional wisdom. Even Mattress Mac was betting on that. Come into Gallery Furniture and buy $3,000 or more of a mattress today. If the Cowboys win it all this weekend, you get your furniture for free. He needs to hire me. I could do his job for him. You could do that. <laughs> Cowboys lost. He's out $2 million. Now, I'm not, I'm not crying for Mattress Mac. He won $7 million over the World Series. So... And and he bought an insurance policy to cover the bet. That's yeah, yeah, how that exactly. works. But he's still out. Two, apparently, he's still out two million. Yeah. Rumor has it. Yeah. So, 
Still, that's a tax write-off for him. Chump change for Mac. Exactly. He'll just offset that $2 million for the $7 million win on the Astros. So, and he'll start buying carbon credits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the point is, is that everybody thought the Cowboys were going to win. That was the odds-on bet. And it didn't happen. Everybody currently thinks the market can only go down from here. Maybe they're right. But when there's an odds-on bet that something is going to happen, it's worth paying attention to the what if it doesn't. And so today's article, we kind of outline some rules to kind of follow to navigate you know, kind of whatever this is going this year. You know, move slowly. Don't take a, don't, don't, you don't have to go pile into the market at one time. Buy a little bit here, nibble a little bit there. You know, if you're overweight equities right now and you're worried about the markets, don't try to underweight it all at once. You know, just trim back slowly. Get yourself where you want to be. Sell laggards and losers that aren't working. Buy stuff that's working. Right? You know, keep your stop losses tight, those type of things. I mean, there's, there's it, you know, the management is not the hard part. It's the impossible part for most people. They buy something and it's not working, but they're going to hold on to it until it comes back at some point. And then I'll sell it and do something else. Well, then you miss the opportunity of other stuff that, that's going on. You know, this is, and, and so, you know, the hard part of managing a portfolio is to say, this isn't working. I got to go fix this. And that's a process that Mike and I and Nick and our whole team go through every day. What's not working? What is working? What do we got to change? Because, again, we don't know what's going to happen next. Nobody does. We can look at all the technical analysis all day long and say, look, you know, we've got this very nice head and shoulders bottom. Um, we've got this, you know, breakout of this consolidation. If it holds, then that's going to pretend to another, you know, couple hundred points of upside here for the markets or more. But there's always risk, right? That's the daily argument. It's like, look, the market's doing one thing and emotionally all these risks are sitting over there that just make you just want to go curl up in a bunker somewhere. And the problem is, is a lot of people are curled up in the bunker right now. Which, again, as we kind of go back to talking about contrarian investing, that's where we have to start thinking about, okay, what happens if there's some clown on the boat? Everybody's on one side of the boat, and there's some clown that goes and stands on the other side of the boat. That doesn't change the boat. But then somebody else goes, I think I'll stand over there too. It's too crowded over here. And then three, then four, and then five. And eventually the boat starts to tip in the other direction. That's how markets work. Question is, is how long are you going to stand on the other side of the boat? <laughs> and that's the problem. All right, that wraps the show today. That article's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, while you're there, send your questions, comments, emails, whatever we can do to help you out. Make sure that you also uh, check out our Before the Bell channel. That's our new channel uh, where we do our three minutes Before the Bell video. That's coming up here in a few minutes. So make sure you're subscribed to Before the Bell. Get all those access on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.